Welcome to the Liberty Podcast. We're so excited that you're interested in the teaching ministry of Liberty Bible Church. We're a multi-site church that exists to share the love of Christ across Northwest Indiana. If you're looking for a church home, please check us out at our website, findliberty.net. Thanks again for joining us as together we're transformed by the teaching from the Word of God. Good morning. It's good to see many of you again that I saw yesterday. It's good to be in God's house. I'll give you a quick update about Pastor John. Some of you know that he did experience a fall this week on Thursday. He is home recovering. He did not have any broken bones, so that's the good news. But continue to pray for him and for Sandy as she cares for him. Uh, Dr. Christopher Yuan, who has been with us this weekend and will be back tonight, uh, will address this this morning. He has taught at Moody Bible Institute for over 10 years. His speaking ministry on faith and sexuality has reached five continents now. He speaks at conferences on college campuses and in churches. He has co-authored with his mother their memoir, Out of a Far Country, A Gay Son's Journey to God, A Broken Mother's Search for Hope. He's also the author of Giving a Voice to the Voiceless. Christopher graduated from Moody Bible Institute in 2005 and received a master's degree in biblical exegesis in 2007, his doctorate of ministry in 2014. His newest book, Holy Sexuality in the Gospel, Sex, Desire, and Relationships Shaped by God's Grand Story, was named the 2020 Book of the Year for Social Issues by Outreach Magazine. Would you please welcome Dr. Christopher Yuan. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for every good and perfect gift. Lord, we realize that it is from you that all things come. Lord, help us this day give glory to you as we should every day that you've given to us. We praise you and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We live in a world of infinite shades of gray, not just 50. Ambiguity has become a virtue. Sexual freedom is pretty much the religion of the land. And this is the, the lie that we hear today, this historic epic, that your sexual desires define you, determine you, and should always delight you. You know, this idolatry of sexual freedom is on a collision course with the gospel, as my life was on a collision course with the gospel. I wasn't raised in a Christian home. My parents raised me with very traditional Chinese values that I can distill to three things. Obey your parents, stool in school, and practice piano. <laughs> I didn't fit in with the other American boys. I looked different, acted different, and I had different interests. God had given me the gifts of music, of sensitivity, and Satan cannot take with those God-given gifts, but he can twist the perception of them. And from a young age, I was viewed and ridiculed as, a, as being effeminate. The first time I remember having these attractions toward the same sex was when I was nine years old, after I came across pornography at a friend's house, at nine. At that young age, I was confused and afraid of those feelings. Without any parental guidance on sexuality, those magazines gave me a distorted view of sex, and they soon became my master. 
with pornography fueling my desires, I had my first encounter when I was 16 years old, but I kept my feelings hidden through high school, college, even the Marine Corps Reserves. In my early 20s, I no longer kept it a secret, and I came out of the closet. I began living openly as a gay man. So I went home, and I broke the news to my parents, and I told them, I am gay. Devastated my mom and dad, but amazingly, through that crisis, my mother came to faith, and then my father did as well. Well, I went the total opposite direction, wanted nothing to do with their crazy religion. I spent most of my free time in the gay clubs. I went from relationship to relationship, seeking intimacy and happiness, which I found, but it still left me feeling unfulfilled and unsatisfied. So I began experimenting with drugs. And to be really clear, not all gays and lesbians do drugs. Not all gay men are promiscuous. Of course, some are, some are not. But this is part of my story. When I tell you my story, you have to be totally honest about it. But I also need to be honest to tell you that when you encounter Christ, he will impact every aspect of your life. So I began experimenting with drugs, but like my classmates, I didn't have much money. And if I was going to do drugs, I needed to find a way to support my habit. And I did that by selling drugs. And I sold to friends, classmates, even a professor. See, I actually thought I could live this double life of being a graduate student by day and a promiscuous drug dealer by night. But three months before I was received my doctorate, the administration of the school expelled me. So my parents flew from Chicago to Louisville, and I thought they were going to fight to keep me in school. My dad's a dentist. He knew the dean very well. All they needed to do was to threaten a lawsuit, and I would stay in school for three months and get my doctorate. Besides, isn't that what any good Chinese parent should do anyway? To my surprise, as we sat there in the dean's office, my mom told the dean, it's not important that Christopher becomes a dentist. What's more important is that Christopher becomes a Christ follower. And she said that they're going to support whatever decision the school made. You see, mom not, my mom knew that when it comes to her kids, nothing is more important than her children following Jesus. Even more important than education, even more important than career. But you know, the sad reality is many people in America may go to church on Sunday and worship God, but then they'll return home and worship idols, the idol of education, the idol of career, the idol of their 401k. And in essence, we often force our kids to do the same. Our parents putting more emphasis upon their children getting their homework done on a weekly basis, getting a better grade, getting into good, good school, all good things. Or should Christian parents be putting more emphasis, actually the most emphasis, upon their kids following Jesus? Nothing is more important than that. But honestly, I was not very happy about my mom's decision. She wasn't on my side. I felt she was on the school side. So I moved further away from them, further away from Chicago, where we're from, to the bright lights in big city of Atlanta, Georgia. And there I quickly took over the drug scene in the gay community, and I became a supplier to other dealers in over a dozen states. In addition, it was nothing for me to have multiple anonymous sexual encounters each and every day. Because according to the world, I had it all. Money, fame, drugs, and sex. I had exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And I began worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator. Because in my world, I had become God. My parents had no clue that I was doing drugs or even selling drugs. 
but they knew my biggest need was to know Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. So they tried to reach out to me in love of Christ and I wanted nothing to do with it. They came to visit me one time in Atlanta and I told them to get out. And you know, the, the, the funny thing is they weren't telling me I was living in sin. I knew what they believed. But just the fact that God had so radically transformed their lives that they radiated Christ, that was offensive to me. And I told them to leave. I didn't even give them an opportunity to call up their friends to pick them up. Before my dad left, he wanted to give me something. And it was his very first Bible. I had the notes in the margins. It was all dog-eared. And I told my dad, I don't want your Bible. He left it on my kitchen counter anyway and walked out the door. And as soon as they left, I took my dad's Bible and I threw it in the trash can. I wanted nothing to do with God and certainly nothing to do with the Bible. And after that visit, it was more than obvious to my parents that I was totally unreachable and completely hopeless. But my parents committed not to focus upon the hopelessness, but upon the promises of God. And along with over a hundred prayer warriors from their church, from their Bible study fellowship group, they began to cry out to God for me. My mom began to pray a bold prayer. God, do whatever it takes to bring this prodigal son to you. Whatever it takes. In her desperation, she fasted every Monday for seven years and once fasted 39 days on my behalf. She would spend hours every morning in her prayer closet on her knees reading the Bible, crying out to God, interceding for me, for many, many others. She knew that it was going to take nothing short of a miracle to bring this prodigal son to the Father. And a miracle is exactly what God did. This miracle came with a bang on my door. I opened up my door, and on my doorstep were 12 federal drug enforcement agents, Atlanta police, and two big German shepherd dogs. I just received a large shipment of drugs, not my largest, but they confiscated all my money and my drugs, and I was charged with the equivalent of 9.1 tons of marijuana. With that amount, I was facing 10 years to life in a federal prison. I had started with a bright future among society's finest in academia, and I found myself in the ditch among society's despised in the Atlanta City Detention Center. So I tried calling home, dreading making that phone call, just imagining the earful that I was going to get on the other line. But But my mother's first words were, Are you okay? No condemnation. No berating words. Just words of unconditional love and grace. The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 2 verse 4 that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. Notice how Paul isn't saying that it's God's anger. It's not God's wrath but it's God's kindness that that leads us to repentance. 
And even on that miserable day, God was pouring out his grace and drawing me to himself through the words of my mother. Actually, my mom was excited to get that phone call, if you can believe it or not, because I hadn't called home in years, and she knew without a doubt that this was God's answer to her prayers. So as she hung up that phone, fighting back the tears, she knew she had to do like that good old hymn says. Count your blessings. Name them one by one. No matter what storm she was going through, no matter what heartache she was enduring, she had to count her blessings. So she set the phone down, and next to the phone was a calculator. And she tore off a little piece of the adding machine tape and she wrote down these first blessings. Christopher is, is in a safe place compared to before. And it called home for the very first time. As my years in prison passed, she kept adding to this list and counting her blessings. And today, this list of blessings is longer and taller than she is both sides. Three days later, I was walking around the cell block and I passed by this garbage can and I thought, this is my life. I'm from upper middle class suburb of Chicago. My father has two doctorates. I was only three months away from receiving my own doctorate. I had it made. But now I found myself among common criminals. Trash. With my head down, I was about to pass by this garbage can. But something on top of the trash caught my eye. I bent over, picked it up, and it was a Gideon's New Testament. I took that New Testament back to my cell. I opened up that good book. For the first time, I read through the entire gospel of Mark that night. But let me tell you, I wasn't thinking this is the word of God, and I certainly wasn't thinking this is the answer. I simply thought that I've got an enormous amount of time on my hands and a better path to somehow. But as some of you know, what we have in our Bibles is not just ink on paper, but what we have in our Bibles, ladies and gentlemen, is the very breath of God, and it is living and powerful and sharper than any double-edged sword, able to cut through the hardest of hearts, exposing my sin, my rebellion, and it wasn't a pretty sight, and I thought things couldn't get any worse. I was wrong. A couple weeks later, I was called into the nurse's office. She sat me down, and I knew something wasn't right. She was uncomfortably struggling with the words, so she wrote something on a piece of paper, slowly slid it across the desk to me. I looked down, and I saw three letters and a symbol. It read HIV positive. The days after were dark and lonely. I was sentenced to six years, much better than 10 years to life. 
but news of my HIV status felt like a death sentence. One night I was laying in my bed and to look up at the cold metal bunk above me, there was graffiti, profanity, gang symbols. But someone had written something else in the corner and it read, if you're bored, read Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. You see, at the most hopeless point in my life, the Lord God, who's using the words penned by a prophet thousands of years ago to a rebellious nation Israel, to tell me that regardless of who I was and what I'd done in my past, he still had a plan for me. I had no clue where that plan was going to take me, but God gave me enough faith, enough strength to get through that one day and the next and the next. My transformation was gradual. God was convicting me of my idols, which were many. The most obvious was drugs. But within a few months, God delivered me from that addiction. God kept bringing to mind other idols. And there was this one thing that I felt like I just couldn't let go of, and it was my sexuality. So I went to a chaplain, and I asked him his opinion. And to my surprise, this chaplain actually told me the Bible does not condemn homosexuality. And he even gave me a book explaining that view. So with much curiosity, I took that book in the hopes of finding biblical justification for homosexuality. I had that book in one hand and the Bible in the other. Can I just tell you, from a purely human perspective, I had every reason in the world to accept what that book is claiming, to justify the way I had been living. But God's indwelling Holy Spirit convicted me that those assertions from that book were a clear distortion of God, his word, and his unmistakable condemnations against same-sex relationships. I couldn't even finish that book, and I gave it back to the chaplain, which meant I turned to the Bible alone, and I went through every verse every chapter, every page of scripture looking for justification. I wanted to find any verse that might bless a monogamous same-sex relationship. So I went through the whole Bible. I went cover to cover several times. I had time. I looked and I looked and I looked and I couldn't find any. So I was at this turning point and a decision had to be made. Either abandon God and his word live as a gay man, pursue a monogamous same-sex relationship by allowing my attractions, get this, by allowing my sexual attractions to dictate not only who I was, but also how I lived. Or abandon pursuing a monogamous same-sex relationship. How? By freeing myself from my sexuality. By not allowing my desires to control who I am and live as a follower of Jesus Christ. My decision was clear and obvious. I followed Jesus. As the days and the weeks and the months of abstinence passed, 
I realize that my sexuality should not be the core of who I am. I told myself before, God loves me unconditionally. That's true, right? But don't we as sinners like to add to God's truth? I added, so therefore God doesn't want me to change. Similar to your friends who might say, God loves me just the way I am, so leave me alone. But I realize, after reading the Bible several times, that unconditional love is not the same thing as unconditional approval of my behavior. Can I say it again? Unconditional love is not the same thing as unconditional approval of my behavior. My identity should not be defined by my sexuality. My identity shouldn't be grounded in my desires, whether sexual or romantic. My identity is not gay. It is not ex-gay. It's not even heterosexual for that matter. Because my identity as a child of the living God must be in Jesus Christ alone. God says, be holy for I am holy. You know, I thought in the past, if I were to become a Christian, that I had to become heterosexual. What does that mean? Well, I need to be sexually attracted to the opposite sex. And actually, I even thought the more sexually attracted I were to lots and lots of women, the more of a Christian man I would be. But I realized that even if I had opposite sex attractions, I would still need to flee temptation and resist sin. So actually, heterosexuality, it's the correct direction, but not the correct goal. And if you think about this, God never commands us be heterosexual for I am heterosexual. But neither did God ever say be homosexual for I am homosexual. Instead, God said be holy for I am holy. Therefore, the opposite of homosexuality is not heterosexuality. That is not the goal. But the opposite of homosexuality is holiness. As a matter of fact, the opposite of every sin is holiness. I don't need to focus upon whether I'm struggling, whether I'm tempted as much, but I need to focus more on living a life of holiness and living a life of purity because change is not the absence of temptations, but change is a spirit-wrought ability to be holy even in the midst of temptations because the ultimate issue is not whether I'm struggling, not whether I'm tempted, but the ultimate issue is that I yearn after God in total surrender and complete obedience. As I began to live this life of surrender and obedience, God began to reveal his plan for my life. And he called me to full-time vocational ministry while I was in prison of all places. And I realized it didn't matter where, where I was, whether I was in prison or out of prison, because my call to ministry would remain the same regardless of the location. And with that change of heart, God did another miracle. And he shortened my prison sentence from six years to three years, which is almost unheard of in the federal system. So with only about a year left of my prison sentence, I knew that if I was going to continue on a ministry after prison, I'd better learn more about the Bible. So I called them collect to my parents, and I told them I think God's calling me to ministry, and then I asked them to mail me an application to Moody Bible Institute. But then there was silence on the other line because I think they both dropped their phones. <laughs> they mailed the application into me to prison. I was so excited when I got it, tore it open, began filling it out until I got to the last page where they asked me for references. Not from anybody, but these had to be people who knew me as a Christian for at least one year. I had some slim pickings in prison. But I was able to persuade a prison chaplain, a prison guard, and another prison inmate to write my references. So amazingly, I was actually accepted. I was released from prison July of 2001, and I started the very next month in August. So imagine the surprise of my classmates when I answered their question, what did you do this summer? 
I graduated from Moody in 2005, went on to my master's in exegesis in 2007, received my doctorate of ministry in 2014, and then back in 2011, I had the incredible privilege of co-authoring a book with my mother called Out of a Far Country, A Gay Son's Journey to God, A Broken Mother's Search for Hope. We wrote this together, uh, and she, uh, she wrote chapter one, I wrote chapter two, she wrote chapter three. She wrote all the odd chapters, and uh, I wrote the even chapters, because we wanted to have from our own voice how you're going to have the same situation told from two totally different perspectives, a parent, a prodigal, but the best part is how God in his power and his grace brought us all back together. This book now is in, um, oh, is, is it now on my computer? Do I have the slides? Oh, I should get my... I'm gonna grab my uh, remote. Sorry about that. This is what happens when you do things um, on the fly like this. Um, oh, okay. So, um, but my, my, my book that I wrote with my mom, these actually were supposed to be, sh- my mom usually does all this, but since she's not, now I don't know if you guys knew this, my mom and my, the reason, I, this is all kind of last minute. My mom and dad and I were supposed to give our family testimony, but my father, um, 12 days ago had a heart attack and um, so he was in the hospital two days ago he just got out yesterday praise the Lord he's in an assistant living uh, nursing home but he's probably going to get out in a few more days so if you think about it pray for Leon um, but anyway so we're this is uh, why it's a little um, out of out of order but anyway so I wrote this book with my mother um, and um, um, th- this book is now actually being used as a textbook in many Christian high schools, which is quite amazing um, that, uh, that, that, you know, we never thought that our book would be used as a textbook. But it actually makes sense because our kids are being flooded with, in, in, flooded with resources on sexuality all from a non-Christian worldview. And they hear so few resources. They, they don't hear any stories. All the stories that they hear today are, I'm so happy to be finally who I truly am. But here's the reality. God doesn't really want us to be happy. He wants us to be holy. And God isn't so concerned about us embracing ourselves. He wants us to embrace Christ. And so... People are using uh, this, this book, and um, here we go. This book on the left, Out of a Far Country, wrote with my mom. There's this free eight-week discussion guide that several Christian high schools are using and now parents are using. Because, you know, I really believe that the job to teach sex education does not belong in the hands of the public schools. Amen? It also doesn't belong in the hands of Hollywood. But, you know, our kids aren't really watching so much television and movies anymore. You know what they're watching? This rectangle. TikTok. YouTube. Instagram. Anyone know what we call YouTube stars? Influencers. Parents, grandparents, listen up. We don't call them stars anymore. We're calling them what they really should be called, influencers. And, and they're doing, in their minds, a successful job because they are influencing a generation 
not toward Christ. You'd be surprised at the top 100 YouTube influencers. Now, by the way, these YouTube influencers have hundreds and millions of followers. Hundreds of millions. And they're providing content on a daily basis. But these, like, top 100 YouTube influencers, if you look at all the YouTube influencers, you'd be surprised at the high percentage, high percentage that are openly LGBTQ+. And if they're not, then they're allies. It's no wonder why our kids are confused. But it's not the job of the Christian, of, 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 it's not the job of public schools. And actually, I would even add, it's not the primary responsibility, primary responsibility to teach your children sex education. That doesn't belong in the hands of the youth pastor either. Now, I hope that they're going to talk about biblical sexuality in youth group, but that shouldn't be the primary place. And parents, please don't pull your kids out when the church talks or youth group talks about sex, biblical sexuality. Because if you do, let me tell you what you're communicating to your kids. I don't want you to learn about biblical sexuality from the church. Instead, learn from the world. Go ahead, learn from the world. That's what you're communicating to your kids. And I know you're thinking, oh, but my kids is eight years old, nine years old. I think that's too young. That's not the right question in 2021. This is 2021. The right question is this, not when is it too young, when is it too early, but when is it too late? You know who holds the responsibility to teach our kids about sex and sexuality? parents. And you know who else? I'm not just gonna, it's not just parents. Grandparents. How many grandparents in here? How many great-grandparents in here? You know why I'm adding you to list? You have too much time on your hands. You got to do something, right? <laughs> Seriously, though, because I know m- many grandparents, I'm like, I'm busier than ever. But this is the, this is the real reason, grandparents and great-grandparents. Think back when you were kids teenagers. How much did you listen to your parents at that age? Maybe grandma, you have more of a listening ear to the grandkids than the parents do. Are we using it to throw a lifeline to our grandkids and our children that are drowning in a sea of misinformation? How many want to save our kids? You know, too often we think, oh, I'll talk to them when they're 16. Let's not be naive. Oh, I'll I'll, I'll do it once a year. If our kids are getting these messages on a daily, it's, it's a daily basis, even once a year may not be enough. Our silence is no longer an option. And I gave this challenge at this church in Oklahoma, rural Oklahoma, to grandparents and parents. It's our responsibility. And this grandmother made a beeline toward our book table. She's like, I need 10 books. (laughs) I'm like, wow, you just need one. No young man, I need 10. She said, one for myself, nine for my grandchildren. She said, I'm gonna mail every single one of my grandkids because she said, I love each one of them and I'm not taking any risks or assuming anything. And she said, I'm gonna mail each one of them a book 
and then I'm going to read it with them, and then I'm going to discuss it with them. A grandmother who's taking seriously the God-given responsibility we all have to not give it to the world, but take that responsibility back. How many of you guys want to take that responsibility back? Anyone? Anyone? Yes. Any fathers, grandfathers out there? Because I know fathers and grandfathers. I know you're like, man, that's the last thing I want to do is talk to my daughter or granddaughter about sex. But if you don't, I promise you the world will. So it's our choice to either continue to remain silent and say nothing, assume maybe even that the parents are talking about it, or we're going to take it upon ourselves and show them this is good news. And I know some of you are like, well, I don't know what to say. My newest book, Holy Sexuality in the Gospel, Sex Design Relationships Shaped by God's Grand Story, because oftentimes our messages on sex and sexuality is this, don't do this, don't do that, don't do this. Those are important messages, but we can't build a Christian life on God's no. So what is God's yes? Quite simply this. Holy sexuality is chastity and singleness or faithfulness in marriage. And that is good news for all. Amazingly, God has given us back the years if the locusts have taken away. My parents and I travel on the nation around the world talking about God's grace and God's truth on sexuality. And then if that wasn't a big enough blessing, God has a sense of humor because he had brought me back to Moody where I taught in the Bible department for 12 years. So I went from prisoner to professor. How about that for a resume? But God has done far more abundantly beyond all that we have asked or thought. You know, when I'm talking a lot uh, in, in churches, I have the opportunity to meet many different people. And there was just one time I met this mother. And I could tell she was just holding a lot of grief. She came up, she started crying. And through her sobs, she was able to get out this. She said, I wish my son was normal. I said, Tell me more about your son. Through her sobs, she said, my son just came out and said he's gay. She was devastated. I wish my son was normal. She said, I wish my son was like my old other son. I said, tell me about your other son. And the mother said, well, he's actually about to have a baby. I said, wow, congratulations. First grandchild, yes. How long has your son been married? Oh, he's not. You see, she failed to realize that her idea of rights was actually wrong. In her view, her gay son was not okay, but her fornicating son was fine. In her grief, this mother's moral compass was thrown off. And like many today, this grieving mother equated normal, in other words, all forms of heterosexuality, including fornication, as moral and good. But the reality is, normal is not necessarily moral. And I know right away people are like, but wait, the Bible promotes heterosexuality, doesn't it? I mean, God made Adam and Eve, not Adam and. So it must be heterosexual. But see, my point isn't that heterosexuality is fully wrong. It's not wholly wrong. It's not wholly right, though. It's not completely right. In other words, this is such an important quote from Charles Spurgeon. Discernment is not knowing the difference between right and wrong. Discernment is not knowing the difference between right and almost right. So heterosexuality is not fully wrong, it's just not fully right. For certain, all forms of heteros homosexual relationships are sinful, but are all forms of heterosexual relationships moral? 
Let's define heterosexuality. Heterosexuality means related to, uh, it's related to attraction or behavior. So it's not just behaviors, but it's also our feelings, our attractions that are romantic or sexual between two people or toward a person. That's a pretty broad definition. So broad that I could be sleeping with half a dozen women and that's heterosexual, right? I could be cheating on my wife with another woman and that's also considered heterosexual. I could be an unmarried man, but I have a girlfriend, we're living together, we have a couple children together. Those three scenarios are heterosexual but sinful. The Bible actually also records heterosexual sin. The rape of Dinah by Shechem, Samson and Delilah, the adultery of David and Bathsheba. We have Tamar and Amnon. And then you have Gomer, the harlot. Poor Hosea. You know, I mean, he should have known when he was going to marry someone named Gomer. I mean, really. You know, he should have known there was trouble. New Testament, we have the incest of adult, uh, and adultery of Herod. We have the prodigal son with all the prostitutes. We have the unmarried Samaritan woman living with a sixth of a series of men. And then we have... Corinth boasting, boasting about the man that was sleeping with his father's wife. You know, we say today, we're like, oh, you know, that's horrible that the country, you know, the world is like, you do you, that's horrible. Well, that's Corinth's motto, you do you. The New Testament mentions adultery 32 times. It mentions sexual immorality 55 times. And in most of those situations, it refers to heterosexual sin. But who actually makes heterosexuality the goal? Well, you'd be surprised. There's this, uh, another time I met with this young, young adults pastor and he told me about a story about this young man he was ministering to. Similar to me, he lived as a gay man many years. He come to Christ, came to Christ, was starting going to this church and this young man actually told this young adults pastor, he said that he has a desire to marry a woman someday. He would love to have kids and have a family. So this young adults pastor was like, man, well, how do I help this this young man to, to marry a woman. He's like, well, he needs to be sexually attracted to women. That's how you prepare for marriage. So he thought, you know, he looked up in his kind of resource list and, and telephone number and he found this, this organization that helped, was supposed to help people to develop this heterosexual potential. So after some years or some months of support groups and, and uh, some counseling, they were driving down the highway and, um, and then they passed by this billboard which I don't know if you've noticed, but many times billboards are not very Christian. There is this one and uh, had a scantily clad woman on it and the pastor was driving, the young man was in the passenger seat. He looked up, he's like, wow, that, that woman's actually pretty hot. Young adult's pastor talked, said he almost slammed on the brakes because he said in any other situation he would have condemned that, that young man in love. But he said in that moment they celebrated the objectification of any person's body, man or woman, is always sin. But when we make heterosexuality the goal, we could be tacitly endorsing sin like that and actually celebrating when people lust after the opposite sex. Like the mother, this young adult's pastor, his moral was thrown off when we make heterosexuality the goal. Certainly not all forms of heterosexuality are sinful. The union between husband and wife is blessed by God. But note this, heterosexual marriage, marriage is, I'm sorry, marriage between a man and woman is not equivalent to heterosexuality. 
And when we're living in a world of infinite shades of gray, we should not be gray ourselves. Because God is not the God of confusion, is he? He's the God of clarity. And so when the world is celebrating ambiguity, instead of affirming what is generally normal, common, or usual, we need to celebrate and point to what is precisely biblical. But what other options do we have? I mean, heterosexuality, bisexuality, homosexuality. I mean, that's kind of the framework, right? Well, the reality is this whole framework is not biblical. It's secular. It's actually Freudian. Freud was the one that popularized it. In essence, what it was doing was categorizing humanity according to our sexual desires. God doesn't want us to be categorized by our sexual desires or any desire for that matter. So how should we be, what category should we have? Let's use a biblical category. Not heterosexuality, not homosexuality, but holy sexuality. What is holy sexuality? Reading through the full counsel of God, there's actually only two paths for us. First path, when you are single, be sexually abstinent. When you are married, and when I say marriage, I'm only using the definition that Jesus used that's found in Bible, one man and one woman. When you are married, you're going to be faithful to your spouse of the opposite sex. So quite simply, holy sexuality is chastity in singleness or faithfulness in marriage. Holy sexuality. So what do we mean by holy? Well, holy means that you're set apart by God. When we live holy lives and when we're going to live holy sexuality, our life is going to be distinct from the world. Chastity and singleness and faithfulness in marriage has always been countercultural. We're going to stand out and maybe even be offensive. Holy also means that you're without flaw. You know, in the ancient world, the character of uh, the devotees or the worshipers always mimicked or reflected the character of the pagan gods. So, for example, Baal, Asherah, their worshipers were violent. Their worshipers were sexual. They were, would have sex in these temples as fertility rites. They were mimicking, mirroring the character of their god. Our God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, our God, uh, Jehovah God, he is without flaw, blemish, and stain. And this was truly unique in the ancient Eastern world. And if God was without flaw, his followers must be as well. Holy also means that it reflects God's glory. In Isaiah 6, when the cherubim were, were, were uh, declaring holy, 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 the whole earth, is full of his glory. That threefold repetition is the strongest super superlative in the Hebrew language. When Moses was before God and received the Ten Commandments, his face shone and reflected God's glory. We need to let the world see God's glory when we live out holy sexuality, chastity and singleness and faithfulness in marriage. So holy sexuality, what do we mean by sexuality? Well, there's three important aspects. It's attractions, actions, and identity. Attractions, actions, and identity. And kind of defining sexuality, it involves attractions or behaviors that are romantic or sexual between persons or toward another person. Chastity and singleness. Why did I use chastity? Well, as opposed to abstinence. 
Abstinence is kind of more about what you don't do. Chastity is about what we need to do, live a holy, pure life. And also note that I'm not using the word celibacy. Sometimes celibacy and chastity are interchangeable, but I find now more, a little bit now, celibacy is more about like this lifelong chosen vocation. Like it's, it's, you know, you think about celibacy, you think about priests in the Roman Catholic priesthood. And of course, they're embroiled in their own kind of controversy now. And I think maybe it's good to avoid all that baggage. Chastity and singleness, faithfulness in marriage. Well, why not chastity and marriage? Chastity, I think, is kind of geared to, toward how, what I'm going to do and how I'm going to live. But faithfulness is other focused toward the other person. It's also two paths. It's not two choices. And specifically, singleness is not a choice. Because I've never met anyone who was born married. Think about it. I mean, <laughs> singleness is default. And if, and if you read Matthew chapter 22, Jesus' words, you know that there is no marriage in heaven. So I hate to break the news to you, but we're all going to be single in eternity. <laughs> but the good news is we're going to all be wed to the Lamb of God. Praise the Lord. So it's um, two paths, and, and I even think that the better way to think about marriage even is that marriage is not a choice. And you're like, but, but isn't that what we do? I, I need to choose the right spouse? When we think about marriage as a choice, that puts immense pressure on people, right? I mean, oh my goodness, am I choosing the right person? The right way to think about marriage is that it's not a choice, but whether it's the will of God or not. You know, when I taught at Moody Bridal Institute, <laughs> I needed to remind my, the, the kids, the college kids, you know, just because there's a godly woman and there's a godly m young man, that doesn't mean that they have to marry. And the more important question is, is this the will of God or not? It's two paths. But why sex? I mean, what's, what... <laughs> Why does, did God even create sex? What's the purpose of sex? Well, sex in marriage is good. It's God's idea. He created it. He blessed it. But in our sexually liberated world, when we see, you know, everyone having more sex, actually more sex doesn't celebrate this really intimate act. It actually devalues it. When it is shared with anyone or, you know, anyone outside of marriage, it's no longer good. God created sex as a special and exclusive gift, something to enjoy between husband and wife. Sex in marriage also consummates one flesh. One flesh union befits only a husband and wife, nothing else. And also it communicates that it's more than just convenient coupling of two people, and it transcends material and emotional and becomes this essential ontological reality. God's intent for one flesh is to be physical, emotional, and spiritual. Sex and marriage also fulfills the creation mandate. Genesis 1.28, be fruitful and multiply. Sex and marriage is also a sign of the marriage covenant. What do I mean by this? Well, throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, we have all these covenants. Which each of the covenant, there's always a sign. For example... God made a covenant with Noah and all of creation that he wouldn't destroy the earth in that same way and the creation in that same way. And what was the sign? You guys remember? Rainbow. Rainbow. And just a side note, 
How many colors are in a rainbow? Count it. Roy G. Biv. Seven. How many colors are in the gay pride flag? Not seven. Six. Not seven. The original, uh, the guy who actually made the, the gay pride flag, actually he wanted it to be eight. I just find it interesting. And not that I'm getting to all you know, numerology or anything like that, but I do find it interesting that the gay pride flag is missing something. Discernment is not knowing the difference between right and wrong, but almost right. Isn't that how Satan comes at us? With truth, and then he twists it. Sign of the marriage covenant. So we have the rainbow, we have circumcision as a sign of God's covenant with Abraham. We have the Sabbath as a sign that Lord made with heaven and earth on the seventh day as he created uh, heavens and earth. Shedding of the Passover lamb and the blood on the doorpost was a sign of God's uh, setting Israel free from, from Egypt. Then we have the New Testament, the New Covenant. What's the sign of the New Covenant? It's the cup of the blood are signs of the New Covenant. Marriage is actually a covenant as well. It's so hard for me to talk, say marriage and not think marriage. Anyway, <laughs> sorry. Inconceivable. So marriage, not marriage. So marriage is actually a covenant. Malachi talks about marriage as a covenant. So if marriage is a covenant, what is the sign? Well, I believe that the sign of the marriage covenant is actually sex. The act of becoming one flesh through sexual intercourse. Thus, sex is not a prize received after wedding. Actually, sex in marriage is the physical sign of the marriage covenant. So each time, husband and wife, when you come together in intimacy, it actually is a reconfirmation of the covenant that you made before God, the church, and each other. Isn't that amazing? It's a reminder of that covenant. Sex in marriage is also other-centered. Sex can oftentimes become an idol where it's like, you know, sex is for me. I, I need my needs met. Husbands, it should not be you owe me, wife, but actually I owe you. It's other-centered. Sex also gives glory to God. I mean, if all of our life is supposed to give glory to God, we should also be giving glory to God, even when no one's looking, even in the privacy of our own bedrooms. But don't I hear that a lot? Well, why is God concerned about what I do in my bedroom? Get out of my bedroom. We hear that all the time, right? What's the big deal? Well, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12 through 19, all things are lawful for me, not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that our bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. That, that word in Greek, never, meganoito, is the strongest no. It's almost like H-E double hockey sticks no. It's that strong. Absolutely not. 
Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexual immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So why is sex such a big deal to God? And why is sexual immorality a big deal to God? First, our bodies are meant for the Lord. You see, Paul is telling the Christians at Corinth that our bodies are not meant for sexual sin or or any other sin but very particularly sexual sin. See, during this time, there was this philosophy and growing philosophy, especially in the second and third centuries, but even then, we're like, our bodies don't matter and our minds are the only thing that matters. And isn't that like today? Our bodies don't matter, let's change it. But what matters is what I think. What we're experiencing now is Gnosticism all over again. Transgenderism, is the new Gnosticism. History repeats itself, doesn't it? But praise the Lord that God is over history. Amen? Second, our bodies are members of Christ. Paul explains that as believers, our physical bodies are actually members of Christ's own body. And when we have sex with a prostitute, when we, have, when we committed uh, sexual immorality, we are including Christ's own body and our own sinful act. Third, we are one spirit with him. Not only do believers have a physical and bodily connection with Jesus, but we also are united with him in spirit. Sexual immorality impacts us bodily and spiritually, and it impacts Christ bodily and spiritually. Being united with Christ in body and spirit makes sexual immorality truly a sinful act. Fourth, our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. No, note here how, what Paul is doing. He's actually tying in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in his explanation, three persons of the Trinity, and explaining why sexual morality is a big deal. See, Paul says, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Because the Holy Spirit abides in us, when we sin sexually, we're actually defiling the temple of of the Holy Spirit. So sex is important. But I think we also need to realize that sex is not as super important as the world makes it, or sometimes we make it. Because I think sometimes we over-sexualize marriage. I don't know what I mean by this. Remember I gave that story about that young adult's pastor where he said, oh man, this young man, he wants to marry. Well, how do I help him marry? Well, he needs to be sexually attracted to women. Are sexual desires a prerequisite for marriage? Is that how a young man prepares for marriage? How does a young lady prepare to be a good wife? To be sexually attracted to men? In all the years where I taught at Moody and mentored young men, many of them who wanted to marry, Many of them who didn't even struggle with same-sex attractions. Never once 
did I help them to be more sexually attracted to women in order to prepare for marriage? You know what's the best way to prepare a young man for marriage? It's to help him to be more like Christ. How does a young lady prepare for marriage? Be more conformed into the image of Christ. I'm a single man, 51 years old. I'm open to marriage. But I like what this missionary said. She was single all her life, served on the mission field. And she kind of got tired after a little while when people would keep asking her, you know, do you want to get married? And I mean, that's, by the way, I mean, that's not always a good question to ask a single person because most single people that I know, they want to get married, just God hasn't provided that yet. But anyway, she got, kind of got tired of that, and this is her answer, and I love it. She said that she wants her life to be so hid in Christ that for a man to find her, he must find Christ first. That's become my life motto. Am I open to marriage? Yes. Am I desperately on the hunt seeking? No. But I want my life to be so hid in Christ that for a lady to find me, she must find Christ first. Holy sexuality, chastity and singleness, faithfulness in marriage. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus. He is the only one who is holy. And Holy Spirit, you are the only one that can make us holy each day, even as we struggle with our own sin nature. Lord, forgive us as we have chased after things of this world. When we have desired things that do not please you. When we have sinned in our minds, sinned with our actions, sinned when we haven't done what we're supposed to do, forgive us, O oh God. Make us holy. For the single men, single women in this room, Lord, make them holy. For the married women, married women in this room, make them holy. Thank you for the clear, precise, beautiful message of holy sexuality, chastity and singleness, or faithfulness in marriage. By your grace, O oh God, help us to do it for your glory. For it is in the matchless, mighty, beautiful name of Jesus that we pray. And the people of God said, Amen. Thanks for being with us today. If you'd like more information on our church or a place to connect, you can check us out on the web at findliberty.net.